Hi, as Pastor Jordan said, I'm Jerry Brown. <clears throat> I'm a counselor with Cornerstone Christian Counseling and Laura's associate affiliate, wherever she is. She's not here, is she? No, she, she got smart and boycotted, I guess. <clears throat> um, I wanted to I'll give you just a little bit about me and then where we're going to go for the night. Um, uh, I'm married. We've been married about 40-some years. Forgive me for not knowing exactly how many. We were married in 1982, 72. So you can figure that out, 45 years or something like that. We have two grown children. Uh, one works for Duncan Aviation in Battle Creek, and the other is a stay-at-home mom and um, near Bremerton, Washington, uh, across the sound from Seattle. Um, <clears throat> I've been, most of my counseling career has been for the Calvary Gospel Mission. Um, I was not a counselor to begin with because I didn't figure out what I wanted to do until I was 50. Um, all true, all true. And when I went, uh, I managed a bookstore in my first career. And when that opportunity closed, because the larger stores eat up the smaller ones, um, I went to the Calvinist Gospel Mission where I was a supervisor and then later a counselor. Found out that I really liked counseling, went back for a counseling degree and <clears throat> uh, worked with them for a number of years. And then in the last uh, four years, I've been a cornerstone um, with my former boss, Barry Brigham, who was at the mission when I was there. So that's been an affiliation and association that's been very good. <clears throat> um, Usually when we talk about um, marriages, and usually I was thinking about it as I was reflecting over the topics for tonight or for other nights in the series, most people would expect different things than what we're going to do tonight, and I apologize at the outset for that, okay? Um, there are many good marriage counselors who have written and do um, writing do uh, videos, do all kinds of things, like Jimmy Evans and his wife. Uh, Marriage on the Rock is one of their titles. Cloud and Townsend do stuff, work on boundaries. Everett Worthington does hope-focused marriage counseling. Um, John Gottman of Behavioral Research from Seattle does a lot of work uh, specifically with investigating and with categorizing communication. And Gary Chapman, Love Languages. And probably you know of others who are very familiar to you. I guess what I wanted to do, though, was tonight was to give you a little bit more of an individual counselor's perspective on the kinds of things that sabotage marriage, and particular things that we don't normally talk about. Um, and one, and the, it brings up what are called issues of process, Okay. When people come to counseling, for marriage counseling, they typically have particular things that they want to deal with. Either their husband or their wife has <clears throat> irritated them or um, become a problem to them. And usually the areas are money, children, sexuality, in-laws, and household duties. Those are the big five. The problem with working on those big five, though, and I found this out by accident, just by trial and error, is that a lot of times issues of process get in the way. Not so much what, we're gonna, what we disagree about, but how we work together and how we disagree, which sabotages communication, keeps everybody doing this, okay? And the two biggest things that I've found typically that do that is anger 
and shame. Now probably you've heard a lot about shame, anger over the years, and you probably know quite a bit about it, um, either from personal experience or from being around somebody else who was angry. Um, if you haven't, uh, there's a number of good titles. One that I found particularly helpful is Letting Go of Anger by the Potter Efrens, two um, therapists from Wisconsin, I believe, or Minnesota. And <clears throat> they are um, very practical folks. They're not operating from a Christian perspective, but a lot of what they say is dead on and certainly compatible with Christian thought and truth. Um, <clears throat> so what I want to talk to you tonight is, a, is just a little bit unusual, and you won't hear this um, most of the time. Um, how many of you have ever had a class on shame? Okay. Most of, us have, most of us haven't even heard of one, okay? And I wish, in retrospect, that I would have had something or some good, you know, a good three or four hours of study uh, when I was, like, in high school. And that would have really benefited me and it would have benefited my marriage. But I deal with that all the time in counseling because folks typically come in not just with anger to cover shame, but usually talk about things that... Um, Stuff gets in uh, their shame gets in the way of problem resolution. And but before I get to that exactly, I want to read just a couple of background things from the scripture one from Genesis and one from Luke, Luke's gospel. And the other thing I want you to think about, just as a matter of reflection, and then try to identify with the kinds of things I'm talking about when we talk about shame. Remember sometime when you were really embarrassed. Sometime when you really got embarrassed by something. Doesn't necessarily mean it was right to, to, have, to have done, but something that really caused you a great deal of embarrassment, humiliation, stigmatization. Okay, all those are, are, are synonyms for shame. And so as you, just as you think about that, okay, you can sort of relate then to what we're going to talk about here tonight. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, pardon me for... Uh, clearing my throat all the time. That's it's that time of the year, I guess. Um, <clears throat> two little vignettes about shame. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 3, um, verse 8. That when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, as if he didn't know, Where are you? He answered, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That little vignette shows us a lot about how our ancient ancestors did and typically managed situations in which they felt shame. 
they tried to cover themselves, even though while they were symbolically naked physically, what they were even more naked from was that they didn't have righteousness. They were no longer, they no longer had something to cover themselves, and so their shameful nakedness would have to be covered by Jesus down the road. Now, of course, we cover ourselves with clothing too, except ours are designer clothes, right? Okay, so we're a little more, um, we don't have to use fig leaves. We just use something that's a little more expensive and a little better. <clears throat> we also blame. So we hide, we blame, and we run. Okay, three very common behaviors when we feel shame, and that's because shame hurts. Okay, let me turn to Luke's gospel. Chapter 7. This is Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet, her, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, presumably not out loud, if this man was a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, despite the fact that he's not talking out loud, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which would have been customary. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, a typical kiss of greeting, which would have been expected for a guest, particularly a guest rabbi. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. <clears throat> the question from this passage, of course, from the perspective of shame, is how does each member, how does each person show and respond? Okay? How does the woman shows that she has had shame from her sinful life, okay? The Pharisee probably figuring that she hasn't repented or she's still an outcast woman. She has a bad reputation here, shame. Jesus, as a rabbi, shouldn't be allowing him, her to touch him. What kind of an obscene kind of thing is that? He's a rabbi. He's unclean ceremonially. He's also probably not exercising very good judgment. So he must not be a rabbi. He must not be a teacher. He must not be someone who really comes from God. Does, what does Jesus do? He asks a question. 
He doesn't take Simon on as he could and um, excoriate him. But he leaves Simon to answer the question, what's going on in me? What is my issues? How do I need to be shamed? And how do I need to see good shame operate in my life to bring me to repentance? That's what should have happened in Simon's case. We don't really know that it did, okay? The Pharisees in general are pretty entrenched in doing things their way. But those are just two illustrations from Scripture, and there are many. As you read Scripture, one of the things to do is to put yourself in the place of, as much as you can, of the people who are there and try to listen to, to what is being said. Now, back to how it impacts our marriages and, and in our lives. You have a handout which I've passed out in front of you. And it gives a definition of shame, which probably is too textbook for you. Um, but that's why I tried to give some examples. Okay. Shame, by definition, is a painful sense of being defective as a human being. Um, it differs from guilt. Guilt's really a legal term about what we do. We say in practice, I feel guilty, or... Um, somebody feels guilty, but that's not really, I don't think, the best understanding of guilt. I may very well, if I drive 80 on, the, on 131 to get here, uh, I am guilty of exceeding the law, okay? Uh, whether I feel shame about it or not, I am guilty. And I think that's a good illustration. A lot of times we don't get caught, and so we, and that's what we're looking for. But guilt's really more about behavior than it is identity, which is what shame is about. Shame is about, guilt is about what I did. Shame is about who I am. And we often talk about ourselves, about who I am, in ways that are, for instance, a a man will typically uh, think of himself and speak of himself or define himself, as it were, by what he does for a living. Okay. So you'll frequently hear somebody say, by way of introduction, well, he's a preacher, he's a carpenter, he's a bricklayer, he's a mason, he's a counselor, whatever. But really that says what we do, not who we are. So how do we get this understanding of who we are? Well, we get it from our parents initially, or those closest to us. We look in the eyes of the people who are closest to us to tell us who we are. Oddly enough, a, an infant's nursing a nursing infant's um, focal length is about the distance from the infant's face to the mother's face. Okay? The infant looks to the parent, looks to the mother in particular, to tell them who they are. Now, now all of this, of course, you know, you, you may not have heard shame for a long time in your life. You know, your focal length may have been, you know, two miles by the time you ever heard the word. But that doesn't mean, see, we, we put it together, we put the language together about how we're treated. We come to understand it. We come to see what it means. Now, shame is about identity, who we are as persons. Any way in which we are attacked or rejected as persons is shaming. And there's synonyms there. Embarrassment, humiliation, stigma, disgrace, and ignominy, an unusual one. To give you some more examples of what shame looks like, there are examples printed in your handout for you. Mild, brief, healthy shame. A simple, quiet parental reprimand. 
or we drop or spill something and feel shame, mild shame by it, or we get a traffic ticket for speeding. All of those things are mild, healthy shame. Moderate, healthy shame, being confronted privately by a friend for sinful behavior, or being confronted by a spouse for consistently hurting them. And a, 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 one el- illustration of severe, healthy shame is Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden by God. But shame's not just healthy. <clears throat> if you look on the, on the next page, on page two in the middle, you see a line of good shame and bad shame, a spectrum, as it were, with healthy shame being on, with shamelessness being on the left, shameful or shame-based feeling and actions being on the right, that's too much or toxic, and good shame being in a range in the middle. Okay? So good shame and bad shame, some brief unhealthy shame, um, a mother or a father shouted at a child, just look at you! That's brief unhealthy shame. Moderate unhealthy or toxic shame, uh, you hear this every now and then, and if they mean it, like in the mall, somebody yelling after their child, if you don't hurry up, I'm going to leave you. What does that tell the kid? Yeah, they're not worth being there. They're not worth saving, okay? Now, one, one illustration of that or one time expo- exposure to that isn't going to create a lot of unhealth in them. But what if the parent does that routinely? Okay. Uh, demeaning name-calling, telling a kid they're worthless or they're never good enough or they're unlovable or they shouldn't exist. I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a, uh, an illustration of that under severely debilitating and toxic shame. Physical and sexual abuse are always demeaning and always, always shame-driving. Okay? Anybody that that is physically or sexually abused almost invariably will really struggle with shame. That's my experience, my clinical experience and judgment. You may disagree with me. Find somebody who has been and talk to them at length. Ask them about how they handle identity issues and who they are and how they function and how do they change and what can they do and become. And you'll see frequently that shame is something that uh, affects them. I want to give you two illustrations of severely debilitating and toxic shame for which um, one of these individuals came to the mission. He was the oldest of four boys from the Bloomingdale area. And by the way, any time I give you illustrations like this, these are true. They are also names are changed to protect the innocent, and uh, they have, I have their permission to, to use these examples. This particular individual is, is now deceased. Um, he was the oldest of four boys. Uh, his father was a functional alcoholic. Um, and believed in corporal punishment. So whenever the kids, the boys did anything wrong, um, they beat Kevin. Kevin um, learned <clears throat> that this was happening, and so he volunteered to spare his brothers, okay, and would take beatings from his father in order to make them feel better. When he turned 14, he took his first drink, and what he told me in counseling later was that he knew right then that he was an alcoholic because it killed the dreams. What dreams? Dreams about being hurt. Dreams about who he was as this bad kid 
And so he drank for first functionally and then increasingly debilitatingly for the next 30 years until he came into the program, a long-term um, program at the mission. I was assigned to him as, for his counselor. Um, he had mixed emotions and mixed reviews of that, and so after a month or two he left, only to come back about three months later and finish the program. Became the director of the men's division uh, for 10 years after that, and then called me uh, when, he, when the mission decided to go a different, different route. Um, they asked him to resign, and on his way out, he stopped down at my office and said, if I need to talk to somebody, can I call you? I said, sure. Never heard from him until three years later. <clears throat> when I got a call from him, he was in the hospital. With, he was dying of pancreatic cancer. I don't know whether he knew he was dying, but I suspect he thought he was. Because he said he wanted to add his own, he knew I told his story, because I was still teaching at that time at the mission. He knew I, I told his story to the different classes that I taught, both on anger management and on shame. And then he knew that I talked to my clients about it. Um, he said, tell them, when you talk to them, tell them it works. Tell them the program, working with God, okay? Dealing with shame, dealing with the old baggage from home, okay? All of that, reworking that, coming to know the truth about it and believe the truth about it is something that works. Um, in honor of him, I tell his story. And then the last one, severely debilitating, debilitating and toxic shame. Um, another lady who's now 49 years old, sorry, 48. Um, she was... Uh, blamed by her mother, who never bonded with her, apparently, blamed by her mother for her own birth. She was told that everything that she did was wrong when she was burned at uh, severely over 60% of her torso when she was four and laying in the hospital stretched out like this because they had to keep the muscles from tightening up and, and becoming immobile in a, in a very um, debilitated condition. She heard her mother in the hall talking to a friend and saying, she's so much trouble, I wish she died. The father leaves when he can't take it anymore, about two years later, and the mother marries, or not marries, but lets move in a guy who is a pedophile and who molests manually all the kids, all the girls, if they have to sleep in the nude and they have to, anytime they go swimming, they have to swim in the nude or they can't go, okay? This guy's a real piece of work. He says he's God to them and he tells them and so they're afraid of him. And the mother doesn't, of course, protect the kids, okay? So what do the kids learn from this? Well, as the mother continues this, this guy finally rapes my client when she's 13 or 14 he goes to prison for 14 years on four counts, but the mother says, well, if, well, if he, he did do it, then you must have seduced him. Right, right. So she leaves because she can't take it anymore. She can't take the abuse anymore. She can't take the shaming anymore. Remember, all this time she's been told everything she does is the problem, okay? And I'm not exaggerating. It may sound like it, but it's not. Some people need to blame other people for their problems, okay? And she was the selected scapegoat, the selected victim for that. 
when she was when she was leaving, her mother said in anger to her because she had caused the mother's boyfriend to go to prison. You know, if you were if you got hit by a car and your dead corpse was was sticking was laying in the middle of the road, I'd stand over you and laugh. To this day, this client does not have a good relationship with her mother who never bonded with her. Her mother has been a very prime source of shame to her. Unfortunately for this client, having learned and having grown up that she's the problem, that she can't do anything right, that everything is uh, her fault, she marries who? An alcoholic who tells her the same thing. Everything is her fault. He has two primary coping patterns. Number one, he needs somebody to blame, which he does, and he drinks. Okay? Severely debilitating and toxic shame. What's debilitating and it continues to be debilitating? The tape in her head. Okay? What she carries with her is her understanding of her identity. Even though she's a Christian and been a Christian for 10 years now, she still struggles with that. But shame, top of page two, shame impacts the rest of our functioning. One way to, de to, to describe a person is that a person is a thinking, feeling, acting, relating spiritual being. This is a functional definition, okay? We function in these ways. And in terms of spirituality, that both has to do with directly with God and who we are. And that's a loop in itself, okay? Shame impacts our thinking by teaching us something different about who we are. We wind up thinking things like, I can't do that. I'm not good enough for that. Other emotions? Well, the one that it particularly drives is anger. Because shame hurts real bad, probably more than any of the other emotions. Okay, And so we want to do things to feel better. Now, what do you do if you want to feel better from a real bad emotion? One of the things you can do emotionally is to get angry. Okay? The adrenaline rush of anger is an upper, okay, which changes what you feel. Plus, if you're angry, you can drive away whoever it is that shamed you. So you get a twofer. Okay? Other actions. What kind of actions does shame impact? Well, what else can you do by action to feel better? What's our culture do to feel better? Any addictions, perhaps? Drink? Do drugs? Use work? Use possessions? Use relationships? Whatever. To feel better. It also hurts our relationships. It's a, we express our hurt when we get married. We come into relationships if we've got a lot of shame. We come into relationships with, a, with our baggage, our beliefs about ourselves and about who we are. And spirituality. It not only affects, often shame doesn't only affects how I think about myself, but I've worked with many clients who fundamentally believe, when pressed and when you really get up close to them, really fundamentally believe that 
they are too evil for God to save. And I've had them say it. And even if they say intellectually that they can be, okay, they still don't feel good enough. They still feel like they have to prove something, like they have to do something, that it's all on them. And they live with the fear that ultimately they'll be rejected. Tragic. Tragic. Now, as you look at the, on part D, as you look at the good shame, bad shame spectrum, and by the way, I didn't mention the, I didn't mention the Gary Larson cartoon. It's an illustration of shame. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. One dear to another. Some of us grow up like that. Some of us grow up, if this happens to be genetic. Usually it's not, okay? Shame is learned for the most part. We can experience more shame than others, so there's, there is, there is some, some learn, uh, genetics to it, as this would suggest. But usually we're taught it. We're taught who we are. And as you think about that, who do bad parents teach their children they are? Okay? I'm letting you off the hook, figuring that you're all good folks and you treat all your kids right and you teach them everything correctly. They have to know and they have to come, under, come to understand who they are. And it has to be okay to be them. Okay? If you, as you look at the spectrum, if you're not in the middle, if you're not in the good shame section, which I'm sure all of you are, but if you're not, which way from the middle are you? Are you closer to the shameless end or closer to the shameful end? In practice... In my counseling experience, okay, I don't talk with anybody that's on the left-hand side, on the shameless end. You know why? Because they're shameless. They don't need counseling. They didn't do anything wrong, not them. They're probably in prison because they believe everything they do is right. The goal is to move to the middle. The goal is to move toward good shame where shame can be useful to teach us and to instruct us and to help us move toward good behavior. Where do we get shame? Five principal sources. Family of origin, how we grow up, in other words. It doesn't have to be the family members. It can be somebody who's related, like an uncle, a brother, a sister, a friend of the family. Um, other people associated with us can be school kids, although that usually comes in more later in terms of peers. The culture, and unfortunately, including churches. Church cultures export a lot of shame, okay? And that's not absolutely wrong because we have beliefs as Christians that particular things are right and particular things are wrong, okay? But how do we handle that rightness and wrongness, Okay? Do we really follow Jesus' kind of example? He doesn't yell and scream and jump up and down and, and point the finger like the Pharisee does with the, with the, with the, the, uh, with the lady who had lived a sinful life. He doesn't need to do that, you see. Not that he doesn't want, want her to move toward health and, and good behavior and, and goodness in life, but he wants her to be healthier. And he recognizes that what really transforms people is a renewed mind. 
she has to overcome a tape in her head which says, I'm worthless, I'm no good. We don't know how she grew up, but the impacts of her behavior shows that she's not all that wonderful a person, hasn't been, but she cries about Jesus, her Lord, who Jesus says has already been forgiven before they ever talked to Simon, before she ever came in the house. So then the question comes, how come Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven? Some of that's because of other people around who get to hear it and think to themselves, oh, this guy can forgive sins. Who is this? But you shouldn't minimize the impact on this lady. This lady's got a tape in her head about how evil she is. Trust me. The reason I want you to trust me on this point is because I listen to their stories. She's got a tape in the head, and it's hard to change the tape in the head. It's hard to, that autopilot, you know? You're really no good. You're not worthless. You idiot. You moron. Our peers, peer pressure hits in the teens. You got to do this. You got to wear the right clothes. You got to go to the right school. You got to be like the other kids. You got to play around. What are you going to do? A lot of pressure on us to do that. You see it on television all the time. That's what everybody's doing. Therefore, you are, what are you, weird? What are you, one of those religious kooks? A partner, this is another place where it comes into difficulty. A partner, what's the impact, what's the impact on your spouse in your communication patterns? John Gottman says there's four things that he can determine in communication that he can tell whether a couple's going to stay together or not. The more they have of these four things, criticism, contempt or shame, stonewalling, and defensiveness. He's got a lot of books out. He's, he has these most every place. It's called, he calls them the four horsemen of divorce. The more your conversation, the more your communication patterns have those four things in them, the more likely it is that you're going to divorce. He says he can predict with 91% accuracy, oddly enough, from his group work. And then number five, as I said before, that our, ourselves is, our, is a source of shame via the tape on our heads. Now, <clears throat> what are the, some of the things that we say to ourselves if we've got a lot of shame? If we're on that shame spectrum and we're on the right-hand side, what are the kinds of things that we typically say? And you can use this as a diagnostic tool to determine how much shame you got. Okay? Um, here's the worst five. Okay? I'm no good or worthless. Not good enough, which comes from perfectionism often. Unlovable. I don't belong or I shouldn't exist. The lady that I told you about that had the burns over, over the 60% of her body, she's got all five. And she has a constant tape going in her head saying, you're no good, you don't deserve anything, etc." What happens when we believe these five things, or some of them, what happens, how do we act, well, that's G, unhealthy patterns of life resulting from excessive shame. 
Another way to think of this is attempted escapes from shame. Okay? Easiest one is number one, withdrawal and isolation. We, we, move, we move ourselves from the situation. We may want to move, we want to move away from the family. We may want to leave this particular school. We may leave, want to leave this particular church. Number two, fears. Typically, if what we fear is different, if a guilty person fears getting caught, a shamed person fears everybody finding out who I really am, or their partner even, figuring out who they really are because they're convinced that they're not worth keeping. So if our partner finds out who we really are, they will leave us. That's the impact of shame in us. Number three, perfectionism, the belief that we need to be perfect, whether or not it's combined with superior function. There's a book called The Messy's Manual, which was uh, put out for housewives that were, uh, did not keep their homes clean because they would start, and then by the time they got to an, one room done, uh, they would fill, that, fill the, done, the room that was done with, another, with stuff from another room. So they'd never, so they'd give up. But they still got the high ideals, okay? Other thinking distortions like denial, minimization, blaming, arrogance, and judgmentalism. Number five, habitual anger directed at others or at ourselves. A lot of people are angry with other people. And you see that happen. You see that in, in feeding arguments when we're in, in couples counseling. I see it all the time. I see name-calling. I see, I see yelling. I see carrying on. How does that work for the resolution? It doesn't. It stands in the way of it. And so what I ask them to do first and foremostly is to work on themselves a little bit so that they can tell and so that they can uh, be more uh, capable of handling the problems between them. If they can't work for good, they can't work for us. And that's what I ask them to do. And number six, addictions. All kinds of addictions occur as an unhealthy pattern from shame that we feel. I had a guy who was, um, he was in his, he was about 40 at the time. He came into the um, program uh, when I was not there, and they assigned me to him because he had been, he had, they needed a different counselor. They thought he might need a different one. And one of the things that he so, he so characteristically, I mean, he said, the way he told his story was that he had um, he'd had a rough childhood, but everybody does, and so that's no big deal. He got into drugs in his teen years and then found Christ in his 20s, and since then he's been better. Well, yeah, except he's still relapsing on his drug of choice, alcohol, every couple of years and needs to come back into a program. Why is that? Well, so that's what the counselor's job, you see, is, to, to help him figure this out. So I asked him, because um, what it looked like is that he had a whole lot of anger. So where's the anger? Where's, what's, what's going on with that? So I asked him about his early life, because he liked to tell his story just like I told you. What the deal was, though, is that he was... Uh, fairly substantially physically abused by his father, who also used to beat him with a belt and with a buckle. And 
even so I said so I said to him what is okay so what do you what's your relationship with your father like he said good he's dead okay okay but then but then still why is why is he still angry and who is he angry at and as I as I continued to talk to him it became very evident that it got that it leaked out at everybody but where the primary focus of his anger was was him even though he wasn't responsible for the abuse, you see, he wasn't responsible for what had happened to him, he nonetheless felt the toxic shame of being a bad kid, of being a bad person. So I asked him to, I said, can you visualize yourself in a chair over here when you were that age? six or seven, when you remember being beaten? He said, yeah. I said, okay, um, do that. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to talk to this kid. What do you say to him? He couldn't tell him that it wasn't the kid's fault, that the abuse wasn't his fault, and he couldn't tell him that he was loved. All he could tell him was, you'll get through it. I said, I really don't think that you've, got, that you've got a story to tell without the abuse. The abuse explains your life, explains the anger, it explains the struggle you've had in an ongoing way, even after you've come to the Lord, it explains the ongoing struggle you have and the need, the felt need for sedation or anesthesia. So I said, I hope that when, because he had wanted to work with kids, and work with other people. He did not have any male, young male friends. He had a niece who was like 16 or 17, who he really had a good, great relationship with, but he didn't have any young males. And so I asked him about that and said to him, I hope that you get a situation where you, where you need that. And so he came back about a year later, said, well, you got what you wish. He brought with him a disabled kid who was about 17 biologically and about seven uh, intellectually, okay? And he could express love to this kid, recognizing that it wasn't the kid's fault. Teach the kid that it's not shameful to be you. It's good to be you, and it's good to be loved. And in so doing, with this other kid, he was able to turn that into himself and to learn to love himself. Sometimes we have to include ourselves with those others, those other neighbors who Jesus says we're supposed to love. Remember, love your Lord, your God, and then love your neighbor. Okay, two big categories left. What helps? What helps is first the understanding of shame at all. One of the things to understand and what really helps is to figure out what's going on in me. It's hard to manage what you don't understand. And one of the keys to understanding is to understand shame and its effects. First of all, the process of identity formation. How we become, how we come to our understanding of who we are. Okay? You have to recognize that's a process, that's a learned thing. Also, the damage to yourself. Self-alienation. We reject ourselves often. C, 
the damage to our relationships that we've hurt others, that, we, that we're distant from our families sometimes, and sometimes our alienation is also from God. We really believe often kids that have been hurt and, and folks that have been hurt, and I hear this all the time, that they're not really sure of a relationship with God. I mean, at one level, they cognitively, they, in terms of thinking, believe that God is real and that they sort of trust in him, but they don't feel it. And, they're not, and they're, they really struggle with a relationship and struggle to believe that God really loves them. Indeed, the, third, the fourth thing to remember and to always keep in mind when you're trying to deal with your shame or, or with your partner's shame or somebody that you, with whom you're working is that change and healing are learning processes. They are processes. That you, there are things that you have to learn. Um, and the illustration I usually give is, suppose I threw you a basketball or sat you down at a piano presuming that you're not already a pianist, okay? You got a basketball in front of you, how well can you bounce it? Can you bounce it as well as Michael Jordan, to use an older NBA player? Anybody want to take that on? No, we can't usually, why? But the question is why? Why is Michael Jordan so good? He's practiced. What has practice done for him? How is it, why has it made him better? He's put down brain tracks. When you learn something new, you physically change the architecture of your brain. You physically change it. And you need to do that in any kind of process, any kind of thing that requires learning. So when we th learn to think differently about who we are and about our identity, you see, we're changing head first, as it were. Paul says that we're transformed by renewed minds, that as we come to think the truth and come to believe what is true and then act in accordance with what we believe, we physically change. We are transformed. We are changed in form or in fashion. But it's a process, and the danger is, in number two, engaging in this process of healing and change. It is very common that everybody wants to, A, quick fix. Nobody wants to struggle. Nobody wants to have a problem that takes them a long time to fix. In fact, in a number of Christian circles, if it doesn't happen fast, it's considered illegitimate. It's considered a lack of faith, not be able to heal it quick. I think that's a false gospel. The issue of whether or not something is supernatural is not how fast it happens, but whether it's driven by the Spirit of God. <coughs> My view. You can disagree. B, a commitment to being gracious to yourself and others. If you've got a lot of shame or you're working with somebody or you're living with somebody who does, you have to treat them with grace. You have to be gracious to yourself. And the reason for that is you can't shame yourself out of shame. All it does is to reinforce it. It makes it worse. If you tell yourself you're, not, you're, you're a bad person and you're not getting better quick enough, all that does is make it harder for you to, to, to get away from it. It simply 
teaches you to shame yourself even more. See, embracing the truth about ourselves and rebuilding our true identity. Who are you really? What is your most fundamental identity? Well, you're a son or daughter of your parents, right? You're a friend of somebody, maybe. You're the spouse of somebody, maybe. You're the parent of somebody, maybe. But you've got another identity that's even greater if you've come to know God. You are a love child of your Abba. God is the one who gets to define us, you see, when we come to faith. He is the one who gives us a different identity. Admitting we have to grow into it, we have to learn it, we have to become it. Rebuilding our true identity. D, living with confusion and disorientation as you find and establish your true self. When you try to do this, it's disorienting, okay? When you try to give up all this old person that you've believed and been told you were or believed yourself to be, and you try to give that up or you try to change, what really happens is a whole lot of, I just don't feel right. It's really easy at that juncture a lot of times to retreat to the old position, to retreat to the old thinking because change is so difficult. Don't give up. Building a new tape in our heads. New tapes. The problem with tapes is, or CDs if you prefer, I don't know what you guys, what the modern version is. Once we have a, uh, words going on in our mind, it's very difficult to dislodge. And the fact is, is that two things don't work. And we hear them sometimes, but they're not really true. Anything that we've learned like that is in permanent memory. If it's in permanent memory, there's two things we can't do. We can't unlearn it, and we can't relearn it. It's there. No matter how long you live, that idea, that concept, that thing that you've been taught or you've told yourself, whatever, is going to be there. But you can learn what is true and learn to interrupt that tape loop and tell yourself the truth. That's what building a new tape in the head means. F, learning assertiveness rather than passivity or aggression. How can I be direct and say, say directly what I need and, and who I am? Establishing and maintaining appropriate boundaries and distance in relation with shamers. If you've got somebody in your experience like this, like the lady that I told you about, her mother, she's had no contact with her mother for years. Not because she hasn't wanted it, but anytime she's had contact, her mother doubles down on shaming and tells her she's, gives her some kind of negative message about how evil she is. She needs to sever the relationship. Not that she wants to. She's cried to me many times about she just wants her mother to love her. We can't control that. She can't control that. All she can do is to become who she needs to be. H, limiting our fear and fear-based anger reactions. That is to say, how are you coping with the shame? You've got to learn to limit the fear, 
not just give in to the fear or, the, or to anger. I, engaging the process of forgiveness. A lot of times we have to forgive people who hurt us, and that's hard. A lot of times things are even harder, at least this is what I've discovered from my counseling practice, you know, that, we, I, that I have more trouble, people have more trouble forgiving themselves than they do forgiving other people. Difficult. But forgiveness is real, okay? And it's a process. And to think of it as a process is helpful. Lewis Meads in his book Shame and Grace uh, has, a, has a good thing on it, and the, and the last page has a description of that. J, connecting and reconnecting with healthy and supportive people. And K, the roles of a wise, caring friend, a counselor, and a supportive group. A group is helpful for change in, in regard to shame. You need to meet with other people who, can, who you can see have struggles like you do. One of the things that shame teaches us is that we're all, it's just us. We're all alone. Nobody feels like us. Nobody, we're uniquely stigmatized. Well, it's unique in the sense it's us, but it's not unique in terms of everybody else not having, the, having the, uh, anything like that. Typically, if you've got a lot of shame or you've got abuse in your background, you should see a counselor, okay, who will, who will help you. But you'll also need a friend to talk to because the counselor's not always available. And lastly, especially helpful books and authors. All of, the, all of the authors on this list are Christian except for um, the first one, Letting Go of Shame, which is still an excellent book. And the next to the last one, Healing from Trauma, A Survivor's Guide. All the rest speak from and talk from and work from a specifically Christian uh, framework and help us to both understand grace, to understand ourselves, and to understand how we function. Now, I know this is a lot and this is heavy, and I both apologize for that, and um, I can take some questions if you have some. Um, we don't have a lot of time, but we have a few minutes, and if there's something that you're, you're dying to understand or to, to hear me um, scream about, um, you're welcome. <clears throat> Appreciate your, your courtesy and your kindness. Thank you for the opportunity, Jordan. <clears throat>